After years of getting ripped off by big wireless providers, there's finally a better option. Mint Mobile is the affordable premium wireless service that you buy online, starting at just 15 bucks a month. By cutting out retail stores, Mint Mobile got rid of the crazy overhead costs so that you could score some sweet savings every month. To get your new wireless phone plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash save. That's mintmobile.com slash save. From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I think people have lost the sense that actually the work is what makes it fun. I mean, we're always trying to make things easier, but sometimes the process, we're spending all this money on therapy. We should just go like, you know, roast some tomatoes. Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. I'm your host, Brian Hogan-Stewart. And surprise, I love to cook. Now, as our guest today just mentioned, it's not just for eating. I also find cooking very therapeutic. But of course, one of the best parts of cooking is sharing that food with others. Think for a minute about a holiday or some other time in your life when you've celebrated something. More often than not, it probably involves food. Food is fun and delicious, and as we know, it brings us together. But of course, that joy can turn to panic if you're cooking for a large group of people. Now, Leslie Jonath, our guest today, is a cookbook producer and author, and she celebrates this labor of love that is cooking for a lot of friends, family, and maybe even people you don't know super well yet, in her new book, Feed Your People. Now, Feed Your People is a collection of recipes, big batch recipes, from celebrated authors, chefs, and more. These are their go-to foods for a crowd, with recipes like Alice Waters' minestrone to Francis Ford Coppola's Mama's Meatballs. And Leslie goes beyond just the recipes. In this book, she includes helpful prep tips, tools, and ideas for how to get a lot of people gathered together around food. We sat down with Leslie recently at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Um, Hi, Leslie. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, we're really excited to talk about your cookbook, um, Feed Your People. So I want to talk a little bit about the concept behind this cookbook. These are big meals for big groups of people. How did you decide to put a cookbook like this together? Uh, well, I'm a, I was a cookbook editor mm-hmm. for many, many years at Chronicle Books in San Francisco. Right. And... Um, you know, many of the ideas I come up with have to do with a, a personal need. And um, every year I have this party. It's a vodka and latke party, which is where my, I tell my mother I'm actually having a party. And then she tells me, uh, I'm not doing it again this year. And then I say to her, oh, come on. And she says, no. And then I um, don't hear from her, from her for about three weeks. And then she'll call me and say, okay, I made 175 latkes or 100 or 200 latkes. And um, when's the party? <laughs> so, um, you know, I realized that actually cooking for large groups of people is something that is not obvious. And as a book editor, I just didn't see many books out there on the subject. So that's one of the things I decided to do. Sure. And this latke party, is this a family tradition? How did this come to be? Yeah, it started small, and then it just okay. got bigger and bigger over time. Uh-huh. So, um, because it's a kind of party where if you say, I'm making vodka and latkes, well, I'm not making the vodka, right. but if I'm making <laughs> latkes, people want to come. They just absolutely want to show up. So, yeah. part of what I realized is that there are certain kinds of foods that people gather around. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you say, I'm having a party, people will, maybe they'll show or they'll consider it. But if you say, I'm making paella, right. or I'm making mac and cheese, or I'm making 
you know, a big brisket, people tend to get excited about that kind of food. Yeah. So I love that you say you have um, shots of pickle juice too to go along with the vodka. I'm curious where that came from because I grew up in the Midwest and there's a tradition there of having um, pickle shots with your Bloody Marys or beer shots with your Bloody Marys. Like you can sort of pick and choose at some restaurants. And I saw a little bit of maybe Midwest influence there, although I'm guessing it's not actually from the Midwest. <laughs> I love that. Actually, there it's pickles, so it's not ah, it's not pickle juice, right? But um, that tradition started from it's um, my dad's really good friend was Russian in. I want to say graduate school, but I don't think that's true because it was the Cold War. So, <laughs> but he had a very good friend who was um, Russian, and his Russian friend actually told him of this ritual. And so I, when I was little, I would watch them do it. They would, you know, take the cold shot of vodka and they would, you have to exhale. Okay. And then you uh, take the shot and then you inhale and you eat the pickle. Got it. And this tradition has become so kind of part of my family's history that we, and now part of all my friends' history. I have friends who actually come to the vodka and vodka party just to do the pickle shot. And they're convinced that it's what brings them luck for the rest of the year. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So you decided to do the book, Feed Your People, um, Cooking for Big Groups of People. How did you decide then to make it a book that's full of contributions from chefs and cooks all across the country? Well, I was a cookbook editor for many years, as I said. And uh, I've just watched so many of these kinds of people, chefs, cooks, who cook for their people. And people who cook for big groups of people just know intuitively what to do. You know, there's a timing, there's the sort of the way you cook for people. And I do it. I do it a little bit by the seat of my pants. And again, as I said before, a lot of the books I do start with me, the ones that I'm interested in, start with thinking like, who knows better than I? My philosophy is if you don't know how to do something, find something, find somebody who's better at you at it. So most of my parties that I have, I invite other really good cooks to cook with me. So it's my mother or it's a friend. So in my, the book was in some ways mirrored that in that I invited different cooks and chefs and people I knew who cook for people uh, who could then cr- essentially ask them the question, what do you cook when you cook for your people? And it was very ex- thrilling to see how people answered that question. Right. And what was the reception like to participating in a book like this? I know you noted sort of that there was a maybe a hole in the market here. Were people excited to participate in a book that feels pretty unique? Yes. I think getting a... The thing about doing a book which has multiple um, people involved, I think that um, my experience of doing these kinds of books, because I've done a number of them, is that the concept, again, is what drives it. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, it's also really hard because I assemble these recipes with a team of people um, to recipe test, you know, big batch cooking. I mean, when you do a cookbook, you have to recipe test. Right. So recipe testing for 20 people was a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it, the nice thing is that the chefs who participated, are, um, I chose you know, people who are really generous. I mean, part of what was fun about this project was reconnecting or connecting with people who are known in the community um, or who have traditions like this where they feed a lot of people. So why is it important to have a book that's sort of focused exclusively on big batch recipes and not just, you know, cookbooks that you can take off the shelf and sort of double, triple, quadruple recipes? When I thought of this book, you know, I did a full-out proposal and I, you know, put it together and uh, I couldn't sell it. Interesting. And no publisher was that in, initially there wasn't any publisher who was interested in it. And they kept saying, well, you know, people don't cook like this. Right. 
And I said, have you heard of holidays? Like, <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, a PTA meeting or a book club or like, I, I guess, you know, people do. I mean, even if people are, when people cook like this, you really do need a book. Right. And, um, and I, again, there's like so many moments where I love to cook because it shows people like care. And so, um, you know, that's where, uh, we did finally find one publisher, the Powerhouse Books, who did a beautiful job. Beautiful yeah. job. Right. Yeah. So are there favorite recipes of yours or contributions in the book that really sort of stand out to you as embodying what you were trying to create with this cookbook? In terms of the recipes that I, I love, I, I almost think more in terms of the shoots and the ways that the recipes came together. We have a Dungeness crab boil from the Dolphin Club in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And, um, and on the way there to getting that recipe, uh, it was Maria Finn and John Engel. Um, they said, well, sure, you can, you can use our club to shoot, but let's feed all the people in the club. Right. And I thought, that's great. So um, we had essentially, it was a big party in which they cooked all of the crab for us. Yeah. Do you have tips for people to sort of approach cooking for a big group of people in a different way that's a little bit less stressful? Don't go at it alone. Okay. So um, I think when people take on cooking for other people, they think they have to be, you know, superhero. And, you know, that's, I think that is really stressful. I, I mean, aside from whatever stress they're bringing from the, the holidays. <laughs> sure, which yeah, is always, I think that's a big factor. Yeah. Well, um, but I think I chose recipes and with the idea that each person's recipe would give tips on that particular recipe. Sure. So, um Deborah Madison's black bean soup, you know, we all think, let's make a big batch of soup. But um, realistically, in terms of your kitchen and what people have in their kitchens, it's much easier and strategic to do two smaller batches. So the book is still, it serves 10 and you can double it and make 20. But there's still stuff involved, like you could just do two smaller batches for 10 and then put them together. It's less cooking time. It's, um, you, you don't have to worry about scorching your pan. Like right. they're just certain. And also when you're dealing with big batch cooking, um, you know, a lot of people have professional kitchens. I don't, but this, the book is really done for the home cook. Yeah. So some really good tips for cooking for big, big groups of people is just how you get organized and how you think through it. Um, you know, from the very beginning. So I guess, the thing I always think about is, first of all, clear out your refrigerator. Uh-huh. Get rid of everything, you know, <laughs> because the refrigerator and storage is a huge issue when you're cooking for a big group of people. So why is it important to have a book that's sort of focused exclusively on big batch recipes and not just, you know, cookbooks that you can take off the shelf and sort of double, triple, quadruple recipes when you're having 30 or 40 people over for Christmas? That um, It's not as easy as doubling a recipe because there's so much involved that has to do with equipment and method and seasoning. So it's not a straight double. And some of the recipes we got from people were from, they were four to six. So we still had to make them to 10 and then double them to 20. And then what we did in the process of recipe testing was we had recipe testing dinners mm-hmm. where we cooked the food at 18 reasons and then we fed people and right. we got feedback. And 18 reasons for folks who don't know is a nonprofit cooking school in San Francisco. 18 Reasons is a great nonprofit and they have a wonderful cooking school and they do cooking classes and cooking matters classes. And they do these beautiful uh, community dinners where they feed 40 
I think it's, yeah, it's like 40 to 80 people. Yeah. And your, your point about it not just being a doubling of a recipe, I think is really important because as you, as you look through feed your people, your cookbook, you'll note that there are notes on equipment. There are notes on shopping and how to process a recipe out over a couple of days or plan out so people can understand what it takes to make a big batch of something. Yeah. I, when you cook for a big group of people, there's so many different things that are good to make ahead of time. I mean, part of why people get stressed out entertaining is they don't give themselves enough time. Right. And that's always, it's really about planning. So, you know, the book tells you, you know, all the things you can make ahead of time. Do you, did you hope that this book would help instill a little bit more of that sense of community in people who might pick it up and take it home from the bookstore? Like, do you think that we're, we sort of lost a bit of that cooking for each other uh, and sitting together around the table as a group of friends, a family. I think people talk a lot about how food brings people together. Mm -hmm. And I really think it does. Right. But I think, think people are still shy of getting in the kitchen and taking a risk and cooking for each other. And I do think that people spend so much time in front of screens, convenience, uh, that I think people don't have lost the sense that actually the work is what makes it fun. Right. I mean, we're always trying to make things easier, but sometimes the process we're spending all this money on therapy. We should just go like, you know, <laughs> roast some tomatoes, yeah. you know? I mean, seriously, or just spending time with people cooking. You know, my, I used to um, make wontons. We have a wonderful dumpling recipe by Andrea Nguyen, yeah. um, who does so many beautiful um, Asian food and dumplings is one of her specialty. And every... Um, I used to live, I was telling you earlier, I lived really close to my nieces and I would make dumplings with my nieces. Right. And then one day I was late and I, they got in the car and I said, look, we're just going to go out for sushi. And we were driving along and the little one was maybe four and I see her lower lip tremble. <laughs> And I said, what's wrong? What's wrong, Sarah? And then she started wailing. I wanted to make wontons. <laughs> and I realized for her, that's what it was about. Right. You know, she wanted to be together making the wontons. Yeah. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Leslie Jonah. Timpano. Oh, my God. Is a pasta. No. With a special grass. No. no. And is it, no. is it shaped no. like, no. like a drum? No. Like a timpani drum. And the hinge side. Come on, please, my God. All of the most important things in the world. Now, Salt and Spine executive producer Alison Sullivan is headed to chat with Viola Buitoni to discuss that famous dish we've been hearing so much about, Big Night Timpano. Now, you might recognize this layered pasta dish from that 1996 Stanley Tucci comedy, Big Night. But the dish has a long history, and Viola is going to share some of her family's history with us today. Thank you so much, Viola, for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alison. It's a pleasure. I think, first off, can you distill what is timpano? I mean, in a way, it's kind of the definition of a community meal, right? It is, first of all, because you can never make a small one. It's just not as effective. And also it takes a very long time. It's a rather laborious dish. So there is really no good reason why you would make a small one, which means you need a community to eat it. 
and also its preparation is intricate. It is not difficult, but it is a multi-layer process, and there are lots of steps which require um, all sorts of different interventions. So it's a good also community exercise in terms of cooking together. Is it a casserole? Is it a cake? How would you describe a timpano? First of all, I would say that it's um, kind of a culinary feat, um, and uh, it is love for it's food for people you love. I always say, and uh, I would describe it in Italy. It would be considered a first dish. Um, in Italy, we divide our we course our meals. So there's always what we call an antipasto, which is before the meal, and then there is a primo, which is a first dish, and then a secondo, which is a second dish or a main course with a contorno, which is a side dish, and then we have the dolce, our dessert. So timpano would squarely be in the first primo dish category because it has pasta. So if you have pasta, you're always a primo. And so how do you recommend that people join together, not just for the eating part, but in the in the process of creating, cooking a timpano? I love that you asked that because I always, um, I always say that the party always begins in the kitchen. In my opinion, it's a great holiday exercise because we talked about it being a multi-step thing. And it's usually something that you want to um, you want to distill over maybe two three days. Otherwise, it will be overwhelming and you'll never make it again. And I just want you to keep making it over and over again. Um, so I would suggest planning the various components, so which there are uh, three plus the assembly, um, and then dividing them in days. And for example, if you have family coming to town from out of town, you can organize timpano parties. Right? You can have them come in, and today we're making the sauce, and another day we're going to be making the tiny meatballs and then finally the the feast the actual more formal party happens around the assembly and the baking of the party why is it that this dish has so much reverence for people well it does for many reasons first of all because uh, do you remember how i said it's food for people you love so if somebody makes this for you they even they've been thinking about it and been talking about it and they are showing you your all um, especially if they made it all by themselves. Um, and so it does inspire reverence to the extent to me, for example, that uh, a well-made pie, for example, can inspire. So you can make many pies and you can eat many pies, but uh, then some pies make your head turn over and say, oh, wow, that was perfect. And the timpano is the same thing. There are so many components and it's diff it's very easy to get one of them wrong. And if you do get them right, and if you do put the love to make this, then, um, then that's why you would get reverence. Wow, what a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Viola. Thank you, Alison. It was a pleasure. Viola recently made timpano during a class at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco. Listen in here to the crowd's reaction at the big reveal. Wow, you can get the recipe for Viola's Big Night Timpano as published in Feed Your People by Leslie Jonath on our website, saltandspine.com. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Now, we love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, and welcoming space. It's perfect for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from their roster of expert teachers. And personally, of course, I love their wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which is the backdrop of all Salt and Spine episodes. 
Don't miss upcoming Civic Kitchen classes like Making Love in Your Kitchen, a great class for couples, and the ever-popular Donuts 101. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. Now back to our conversation with Leslie Jonah. When I was looking through your book, I couldn't help but think about when I was growing up, the predominant cookbook in my house was like the church cookbook, right? I grew up in the Midwest. There were, there were always, dif- always different volumes of cookbooks that came together. Usually it felt like around a church community, but often around other school communities or things where people submitted recipes. They were compiled into the little um, spiral bound notebooks. And it sort of felt like it was hearkening back in a lot of ways to those cookbooks that really felt like you were part of a community. You're seeing faces and stories of chefs from across the country in your book. It really does feel like that that sense of community that you've established here. Uh, I have to say that this, this that you said that this made you feel like it was about community and that it's a community cookbook was exactly what I wanted it to feel like. Um, because I think that is, I mean, church cookbooks and community cookbooks are about people putting something together. It's the same thing as the cooking. When you're putting a book together or you're putting a meal together, you're bringing people together. And um, I, I do think that that is a really wonderful way of having everyone invested in the book itself. Right. Yeah. So you worked um, in cookbook publishing for many years uh, and book publishing. Um, tell us a little bit about how your experience there influenced working on this book. The way that working at a publishing house help this book is that I understand really fully the process of making a book. And I've made many, many, many of them, which I consider a a great joy and a great privilege. It's been a wonderful way to understand the nuances that go into making a cookbook. They're very technical, actually. And they have, there's a lot of components that make a good book from the editing to the photography. Um, there's a million details that go into it. So I feel like having, I never could have done this book had I not been in publishing. Are there other cookbooks that you turned to when you were working on Feed Your People, either for inspiration or just to sort of look at how other people had approached books that might be sort of similar to this? You know, I went, I spent maybe half of my time at Omnivore Books with Celia Sack uh-huh. looking at books. Yeah. So I looked at a lot of books that I felt from a visual standpoint, from a recipe standpoint, from the format, you know, how the information is presented. Um, so I, I did use a lot of different, there were a lot of different inspirations. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what they were though. They all merge. But I, you know, of course I love, uh, and there's certain books that I just love that have come out recently. I love Samin Nosrat's Mm -hmm. book. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. Salt, fat, acid, heat. Yeah. And I also feel like cookbooks really, changed a lot from when I started working on them. They used to be much more rigid in the way that the language was edited. Um, we were much more um, systematic around the way we would, you know, numbers, not numbers. I think that it's become much more, maybe this is a result of blogs and different media, is that okay. cookbooks have become much more narrative. Mm, yeah. So I think one of the things that I really started to understand was that you know, breaking formats. I mean, you, it's kind of like you have to know what it's supposed to be in order to make the exception and sure. decide you're not going to follow that rule. So um, I won't tell you what it was that we did that for. <laughs> Are there other changes that you've seen in the cookbook industry in your years working with cookbooks becoming more narrative? Are there other sort of Yeah, when I started working on cookbooks, 
um, you know, I was when I was working at Chronicle, we did a lot of paperbacks, and there was a lot of emphasis on inexpensive paperbacks. Okay, and of course, the more digital media started taking over, and the more accessible recipes became, the more visual and more object objet the books became, and so they become these gorgeous, coveted objects. Right, which has been from a production side. So much fun! I I love what you what's happening now. I love that illustrations a part of it. I love that the cookbooks are becoming much more flexible and interesting in terms of what people are doing. Well, I want to play a short little game with you before our time is up. I hope this is okay. I'm gonna throw some events out for you, and I'd love if you could suggest maybe a type, uh, maybe a dish from the book specifically, or just something that you might make um, for a large group of people at such an event. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. I feel like we need some fun game music or something yeah, in okay, the background. Yeah, okay, let's do it. Um, so you're having a movie night. You're inviting a bunch of people over to watch an, uh, an exciting new movie that you're super excited about. What do you serve to a group of people to watch a movie? Okay, so you don't want anything that makes too much noise. Right. Right, so no, forget the popcorn, right? Okay. I would say mac and cheese. I think mm. it's like, also we have to contextualize it. It's winter time. Okay. You're inside. Sure. Yep. You're freezing. Maybe you're in Iowa. <laughs> Maybe. <And> so, <laughs> oh no, you're in San Francisco in the summer. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I would say mac and cheese. Okay. How I mean, like we didn't that. even ask how many people. Twenty. Yeah, twenty is good because you want something that you can actually you can scoop out. You know, you can people can wait, then they have they eat all at once, and then you would have like salads or some. You know, maybe they would come to your house. You'd have some some nice cheeses, not cheeses because right. you have cheese. You'd have some olives, some ham. Right. Yeah, okay. I love that idea. Yeah. Okay, next one, um, and this is a thing that is happening in the real world. I see this on Instagram: a birthday party for your pet. What do you make? So, are you outside? Yeah. Okay, you're I think you're, you're in a backyard. Okay. Dogs are playing. You're hanging out. Okay. So I would say two things. One is um, you're going to do some sort of a barbecue, right? Okay. And mm-hmm. I do barbecued ribs or maybe something vegetarian. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I think would be fun is if you made some kind of empanada or some sort of mm. something that you could sort of... Some portable food, where because sure. I'm thinking you're hanging out with your dog, you're you're you know talking. You don't actually want to have a plate, right? So I think you want something where you have like a bunch of snacky kind of empanadas or hand pies or things like that, right? Not a hot dog, no. Too literal. <laughs> <laughs> no, that might be really fun. You could do that. Yeah, part of the barbecue, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Here's here's a fun one with a twist. Okay. It's, it's the end of the world. The, the world the is world. ending. Oh, yeah. Your friends, your family are together. You got to do the timpano, though. Um, I mentioned it earlier. Uh-huh. Like, that is one of the best foods in the world. Yeah. But the end of the world has to last three days so that you have right. time to make it. <laughs> right. We have enough warning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Um, I distinctly remember one of my um, clearest memories of cooking for a crowd is my sister's, my younger sister's high school graduation party. We made walking tacos, which I feel like we've talked about on several episodes now, but it's a very Midwestern food. You take bags of Doritos, crunch them up, have like seasoned beef. You basically make a little like taco salad Ooh, I love in it. a Dorito, yeah. small Dorito bag. And then we made Oreo balls which are like crushed up Oreos, like cream cheese. I think they're dipped in white chocolate. Yeah. And for like nine months, all we ate in my family was like leftover ground beef, leftover Oreo balls because we so overestimated and made so much for a crowd. So I feel like um, this, this book, Feed Your People, is a wonderful resource for people looking to make 
big batches like that and not wanting to eat leftover ground beef for a year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope so. (laughs) Yes, I think so. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. This was really fun. Thank you so much for inviting me on. We're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. Hey, how are you? Great. So we just talked with Leslie Jonath about her new book, Feed Your People, and I'm hoping you have something to share. Absolutely. I am so excited about this book, and I I talked for many hours with Leslie about it as she was putting it together. Okay. Um, One of the suggestions I had for her, which she took up with uh, great passion, I was really excited about, uh, was to include lots of cultures, different cultures into the mix. Right. Uh, I think oftentimes we have these potluck or feast uh, cookbooks out of America that just talk about American picnic foods and, you know, the kinds of things you think of bringing to a county fair. Sure. And I said, you know, let's have, I mean, Indian food is great to share, Mexican, um, you know, Saudi Arabian, whatever. Right. And she really took that to heart and went out and found, you know, one of the first people that connected her with was uh, Pierre Tiam, who writes a lot about Senegalese food uh-huh. and uh, has a restaurant in New York. And she got him to contribute recipes and took pictures of these great feasts with multicultural angles that felt so inclusive. And in this time in our country, what connects us so much to other cultures really is food and and anything we can do to make make uh peace with understanding other cultures and including them in our lives i think is highly important yeah i think that's so true and it, it totally opened my eyes into big batch cooking i mean as someone from the midwest i think about what to make for a big batch party and it's you know some sloppy joes and some potato salad yes. or something but <laughs> but this book really does i think paint a broad picture Next for time people you can make so. Nepalese Monty. exactly and i think i will <laughs> yeah. that's great thanks so much celia sure And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. There, you'll find two recipes from Leslie Jonas' Feed Your People, including the Big Night Tampano. You can also hear Leslie reading an excerpt from her cookbook and enter to win a giveaway of a copy of Feed Your People. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song was recorded by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Viola Buitoni. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 